0: Good morning, good afternoon and good evening everyone. Welcome to today's uh, webinar on Value Chain Development and the Poor, Promise Delivery and Opportunities for Impact at Scale, jointly organised by the CGIAR Research Programme on Policies, Institutions and Markets, PIM, and the Food Security Portal. My name is Erwin Bult, I'm the Professor of Development Economics at Wageningen University and I'm also one of the co-leaders of the uh, PIM's Research Flagship on Inclusive and Efficient Value Chains. Nick Mind is the other Um, co-leader. He's stuck in a cabin in the woods somewhere. I hope he will be able to join us later today and maybe share some words of wisdom. Uh, Until then uh, it's up to me to moderate this session and it's my pleasure to uh, to do so. In recent years value chain development in the agro food system has been hailed as the uh, practical way to expand market access for smallholder producers, reduce poverty, enhance environmental sustainability and improve food security and gender equity. Despite significant investments in uh, value chain development from government donors and NGOs, however, evidence regarding the effectiveness of VCD interventions in addressing these important development goals is generally lacking. Many existing studies have focused on the design and output of VCD interventions themselves, rather than on their outcomes and deeper impacts. And as a result, the true reach of these programs remains essentially unknown, and particularly for uh, poor populations. This webinar will present some of the findings from recent CGIR research on food value chains in three regions. A recent book published by Practical Action Publishing and supported by the CGIR Research Programme on Policies, Institutions and Markets, and the CGIR Research Programme on maize Agri-Food Systems looks to fill this important knowledge gap value chain development and the poor, Promise, delivery and opportunities for impact at scale, provides a collection of case studies and lessons learned from VCD interventions in Latin America, Africa and Asia. During this webinar editors Jason Donovan, Dietmar Dietmar Stoyan and John Helen will present findings from the book and explore how VCD can be more effectively designed, implemented, and scaled up to include and benefit poor populations. We will essentially move to the presentations in just a few minutes, but before that, let me briefly explain the logistics of this uh, session. We will hear from the three presenters I just mentioned in the next 20 minutes, approximately. uh, And I will uh, say a few words about these speakers uh, in a few minutes. In the second half of the webinar, we will have a Q&A session to answer the questions from the audience and we will invite all of you to submit your questions via the question window on the right side of your screens. Please feel free to do so as the presenters speak and towards the end, we will try to sort them out and go through them uh, to the extent possible within the half an hour that we have. When you ask your question please let us know who and where you are and what organization you represent if applicable and please also let us know which speaker you'd like to address your question. Finally we are recording this webinar and the slides and recording will be available on the PIM website shortly after the live session. So without further ado, let me introduce the three speakers. Um, The first one will be Jason Donovan, Senior Economist at the International Mace and Weed Improvement Center, CIMIT. The second speaker will be Dietmar Stoyan, Lead Scientist of World Agroforestry, or ICRAF. And the third speaker will be John Helen, Head of the Sustainable Impact Platform of the International Rice Research Institute, ERI. They will present their insights uh, and those from other researchers, uh, mainly from the CTIR and practitioners on how to achieve impact at scale. With that, I'd like to give the floor to you, Jason.
1: Okay, thank you Erwin for that introduction. Welcome all and thanks for joining us today. Let me zoom to the first slide here. Um, So in the next few minutes, we'd like to provide an overview of the recently published book that Erwin mentioned, Value um, Chain Development in the Poor. This book was published by Practical Action Publishing based in the UK. Practical Action was an ideal partner for us because they specialize in bridging the communi- bridging communication between research and development practitioners. So um, they're able to reach the target, the audience that we're targeting with the book. Um, we're gonna, the presentation today will, will basically be made in three parts. I'll start. Um, I'll provide an overview of why we why we why we put this book together, and I'll also provide a summary of three chapters. Um, John John Hiling will take over. He'll provide a summary of two of the chapters, and then Deepmar will follow up with a summary of two more chapters. And some and we'll zoom out at the end to discuss some implications of the contents of the book for future thinking about how we in the CGIR and others. Um, engage at this sort of interface between research research development in relation to to value chains. Um, So let's let's get started. Why this book? Um, Many of us know there's been lots of investments in in value chain development by traditional donors, so bilateral bilateral donors, government agencies, private foundations, but also by the private sector, um, large-scale professors have worked with NGOs and and research organizations in recent years to improve their own sourcing of of raw materials derived from smallholder production. Um, And this has been going on for a couple of decades now. And an an interesting more recent trend is is that value chain concepts and approaches have expanded into other development areas. So it's not just a purview of say poverty reduction and market linkage programs. It's hard to talk about sort of areas of work around local economic development, health and nutrition, food systems, and even seed systems without value chain terms and concepts popping up. And that makes perfect sense. Um, anytime the private, sec- or private sector plays a key role in the production and distribution of goods and services, um, and where those goods and services are critical to the performance of a, you know, development interventions, and yeah, it makes sense um so anyway we're excited to see those 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 trends um but even after 20 years three of us at least are still asking this sort of this question of you know what works and what doesn't work in terms of value chain programming and there are fundamental questions here that remain basically unanswered And, and you know a couple of them it does you know we're we're asking it still you know does Better access to market. It, it, does that lead to sort of benefits, uh, meaningful benefits for smallholders over time? Does increase value adding, investments in quality, and certification and branding, and um, um, does that lead to higher value adding? And are those benefits shared along the chain? And there are many other questions that that need to be addressed. Um, and part of this book is there, is is you know is an effort to remind. Um, our readers and development, those engaged in in rural development, about the need to to refocus um, attention on these questions. Now, there has been lots of interest among researchers in value chains, and this goes back even even more than 20 years. Um, But researchers have tended to not not engage heavily on value chain development. It's been sort of considered the purview of NGOs. the CGR has figured prominently in value chain discussions, but, but their presence or its presence was relatively recent in the past five or ten years. And so what this book aims to do is sort of bring together what we know of lessons from researchers, including many in the CGR, as well as from practitioners. Several of the chapters in the book are led by some leading thinkers and in international NGOs, World Vision, uh, MEDA, the Mennonite Development Organization among them. So that's why we put this book together um, let me screen down okay here are the here are the contents the book is divided into three sections the first section looks at the con- the context for value chain development um and here the 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 chapter uh chapter titles in red are the ones that we'll be briefly summarizing in this presentation so we'll be looking at uh Issue cycles and debates on value chain development and more on more on what that means in the next next slide. Um, John Helene will be looking at maize diversity market access and what that means for property reduction. Dietmar will take a quick tour of development impact bonds, what they are and why they're relevant and what needs to happen for them to be more relevant. I'll, I'll look at um, cooperatives and their role in value chain development and, and what you know, what expectations we have for cooperatives and, and what needs to be done to potentialize cooperative engagement. Section two looks at how value chain development programming is actually designed and implemented in the field. Um, Dimar will talk about gender tools that are available for gender, equi- gender equitable value chain development, what's there, what the strengths are of these tools, and what, what the options there are for, for extending or strengthening the available set of tools available. I'll take a look at Nicaragua and how, several, how international NGOs are actually implementing value chain development in the field. John Helene will look at the design of digital agriculture and what that means for value chains. There's a third section, um, which contains a number of really interesting articles that look to that look back on value chain interventions in terms of trying to assess outcomes and impacts. A lot of these are from Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, these, are, these are really solid solid chapters. We won't be able to cover them due to time constraints in this session, but we would, of course, invite you to take a look. Um, at the chapters in the book, the book is uh, before we get started with the con- with the, the summary of the contents, the chapters.
2: The book is available
1: online, and it's uh, thanks to financing support from PIM and the May CRP. Uh, it's open access, and at the end of the presentation, we'll we'll share the link if you haven't already downloaded the book. All right. So the first the first chapter um, issue attention cycles. Um, so this isn't a term you normally associate with value chains and and development work in general. It actually comes from political science. It's been around for a long time. It was used by political scientists to understand you know, how certain issues came into the public arena um, and how, and trying to understand, you know, what, what um, the cycle in which they emerge and decline. And it, the idea was that if you could understand that cycle, you could work to prolong it or shorten it depending on your needs and wants. Um, there's typically five stages that are associated with the cycle pre-proliferation where interest around a given innovation or topic um, among a few people uh, researchers perhaps um, emerges there's proliferation sort of interest there's a, there's a, a flood of interest in, in, in the innovation and financing becomes available it's the end thing It's what researchers are talking about practitioners are moving around in the field but eventually there tends to be a leveling off phase so the first impact assessments if you want to think about development programming the first impacts impacts assessments start to roll in and oh people are scratching their head going it's a bit more complicated than we thought there's trade-offs that we didn't consider etc there's a gradual decline in interest funding streams donors get jittery funding streams start to dry up and then there's a post-proliferation where people just move on um, to new things or at least perhaps rebrand what they were doing before. Um, Anyway, that's sort of the cycle. Um, And what we wanted to do was put that lens on 20, 30, 40 years of discussions around not only just value chains, but also look back into the 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 issues that came up before value chains. Um, And there was, you know, there's been interest in market oriented development for a long time, uh, well before value chains even entered the development lexicon. Now, there's a couple of things to point out here. We're interested, uh, I mean, we, we hold out the option that cycles, the issue cycles can sort of be positive in the sense that if we're talking about innovation, that the spark of the cycle, that's a result of lessons from implementation. And this is sort of emerges from engagement or cross fertilization between researchers and practice practitioners that's a good thing um, that you know it's okay for an issue to come and go um, but as long as we're sort of building over time and, and understanding our our understanding of what works and doesn't work and how to do things better but of course the cycles can also have a negative connotation um, and that would be where there's unresolved issues that, that just sort of don't get addressed where this complexity comes into play and we just sort of drop it um and, and move on to the next thing where new approaches the new the innovation really the, the cycle really doesn't come to terms with the complexity because it's, it's cut short too soon um and there's competition among implementers right and donors and we know donors of course are responsible to their um, to taxpayers or to whomever um and recognize that there's pressure to not do the kind of critical reflection that that, that is needed so anyway That's the issue attention cycle here's what we found now this is a a summary figure that looks at attention issue cycles on both the practice side of the debate and the research side of the debate and we could spend all day talking about this slide Um, i just want to point out a couple things here on the practice on the top on the top bit of the slide on the practice driven arena um, there's a lot of issue cycles Um, and we this Reflects what we were just talking about. This idea that sort of NGOs don't really have an incentive to reflect critically, at least in, in an open forum, on on what they do. Donors are quick to move on to the next thing, even if um, um, you know, uh, in order not to have to sort of deal with the, the complexity and, and the potential fallout from negative impact assessments and, and whatnot. On the research, on the research angle. Um, it's interesting to point out, and the same holds on the practitioner side, but maybe just to draw an example on the research side, um, on the dramatic swings in, in the confusing terminology used in the issues that, that are present in the issue cycle. So if you look at the late 1990s, and early 2000s, so sociologists were working, um, were thinking about world systems theory, right? And sort of came up with a global, the commodity chain debate emerged in the late 1990s. And this was really an effort to explain how globalization in the reach of large retailers and um, processors in Europe and the United States were reshaping supply networks in the global South. And the connotations were pretty negative. Um, in fact, they were pretty, very negative. Um, but somehow those same authors switched terms, so now all of a sudden there was talk about global value chains, but the tone was very much in line with sort of development. Um, and it, was, it wasn't it was about sort of the restructuring and, and the, the the challenges facing the global south. Rather, it was if you could understand how northern retailers and processors were working and what they needed, you could think about options to upgrade primary production and, and, and small and the capacities of small and medium enterprises and you had a development angle there. And so anyway, it, this all this confusion and issue cycles that came up in the research arena was, for those of us who were working back in value chains in, in the early 2000s and we would spend the first five slides of any presentation just trying to explain what value chains were so anyway um, that's if you want but there's a lot here um if, if you want more information or interested in this idea of issue attention cycles and the debates on value chains and market-based approaches do, do check out that chapter one shifting gears a bit um, cooperatives and the role the expectations that 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 we have, or that is often embedded in development programming around cooperatives. This this chapter looks at cooperatives in Peru. Um, there have been multi-million dollars, huge efforts by USAID, by the Peruvian government, by UN organizations to build cocoa value chains in the tropical areas of Peru. So what we were looking at was. Okay, we know that cooperatives are expected to play an important role in helping smallholders to access higher value markets, in this case, markets for cocoa, certified cocoa, niche cocoa. Um, and there are strong expectations regarding the capacities of co-ops to deliver services to the members. Often these development programs need cooperatives. They're the ones that are traditional forms of organization in meeting places. They already, the structures are already in place. Um, and so they're, they're needed by, by these programs. And there have been well-documented success stories so and this is in the peer-reviewed literature there's there's the donor darlings of el Seo and bolivia which chocolate processing in in bolivia there's guapa coco and in ghana the largest fair trade exporter of cocoa i think in the world certainly in west africa Um, there's been limit but there's been limited discussion Um, if if you look beyond these uh, well-documented success stories there's really not a lot of discussion on the rest of cocoa cooperatives, on the others, um, and the long and turbulent process by which cooperatives develop it over time, and what possible, short- co- what possible shortcuts might be out there. And so what we did was we looked at four emerging cocoa cooperatives in Peru, and by emerging we mean these aren't cooperatives that were recently set up by by projects. They may have been set up by projects at one time, but they've survived the test of time. They've been around for at least ten years, um, but they hardly have reached a level of success that you would you would find in these um, in the, you know in the El Salo and cooperative stories. Um, and we looked at their performance across a number of dimensions. Um, here's what we found: cooperatives, the cooperatives that we looked at were. In general, struggling to build close relationships with buyers and members due to limited working capital and access to finance. I mean, this is huge implications um, for value chain development. If the key link between buyers and, and, and smallholders is the cooperative, um, and they're not able to build the relationships that are needed, um, we've got some issues here. Um, and we've got an unstable, uh, unable, sorry, unable to offer cocoa prices, higher cocoa prices to members vis-à-vis traditional channels. Sales are usually confined to a sole buyer. And buyers face face cooperatives with a history of incomplete contracts. Boards of directors are engaged in day-to-day operations. So major governance issues here. Sometimes projects look to sort of get around that issue by installing their own, hiring their own managers. Also serious implications there. Now, what does all this mean? Okay, development programs that depend on co-ops for the success can't continue to overlook poor business performance. Sort of the idea that, you know, the ostrich in the sand strategy doesn't work. Um, if, If we want value chain development to deliver impacts in less time, we've got to this elephant, one of the elephants in the room. Value chain partners need a stronger commitment to build the soft assets associated with management and governments. NGOs typically don't like to get involved in this, it's messy. Cooperatives may not want it either. And to the extent that NGOs need cooperatives, these, these kind of issues tend to just sort of fester along. Um, government agencies and NGOs, they're certainly critical in the development process, no doubt about that. But there's an urgent need for both to go beyond sort of the basic donor outcome or output reporting, activity reporting, and to really embrace sort of um, deeper, better learning and monitoring monitoring and learning cycles. And I think part of the, what this what this chapter argues that there's also need, the private sector needs to step up here too. Um, cooperative building isn't just the purview of NGOs. There's a huge rural um, entrepreneurship capacity gap in rural areas. The private sector needs to sort of get engaged here. Um, and that would require some coordinated interventions and, and some joint risk sharing with, with development uh, cooperation. So anyway, moving on from Peru, we'll go to Nicaragua. This is the last chapter sermon that I'll do, and then I'll pass over to John. Um, in Nicaragua, we were looking at a broader set of issues. Um, and we were looking at uh, across multiple types of value chains. We were looking to see how international NGOs were leading the design and implementation of value chain development. So a real sort of field-oriented look. In here, so we, set, we framed the research gap in the following way so we, there's a real challenge it, it's tough to get the right design for value chain development there's a complex business environment you've got lots of stakeholders to consider and you're dealing with you know resource constrained farmers and, and small enterprises it, it, it's tough to get right uh, and stakeholder needs it, it's not about just getting it right once. Um, stakeholder needs are likely to change during. Um, any the implementation of any value chain intervention in response to market conditions, buyers come and go. There's also likely livelihood dynamics within households or within farming households. Now, now look, there's been a, a lot of work by PIM, by others in the past ten years on designing approaches to uh, value chain development. sorry, designing tools for um, for for designing value chain development. In many of the, some of the best known tools have been have been developed by the CG, some of the on the right, the covers, um, but not only the CG, donor organizations, GI said, for example, ILO have also produced their own, they're also uh, also produced their own guides. Um, yet, um, no one's really taken a look at how NGOs and others, whether it could be private businesses are using these tools, what issues, um, might, what needs and issues might be there that aren't being addressed. And and so that was sort of the motivation for this work. We looked at four interventions by international NGOs and high value agriculture in Nicaragua, so dairy, horticulture, coffee, cocoa. We did 28 interviews uh, with buyers, NGO reps, and cooperative leaders, um, and covered all, a number of dimensions around partnerships, their perceived needs, what how they designed their approaches, who was engaged, etc. And this is what we found. Um, So despite uh, the complexity that we just mentioned in the previous slide, that's inherent um, around the design, of the good design of value chain development, NGOs tended to apply a pretty formulaic approach to design. So there's reliance on a single tool for design and implementation. That's a sort of an issue in the sense that there's none of the tools that we just uh, described in the previous, uh, presented in the previous slide, Actually designed to cover all the dimensions of value chain development. It's just too much for any one tool. Um, whether we're talking about the initial design, uh, support for implementation, monitoring, evaluation at the end, uh, learning, you know, learning uh, within the, within the project framework. Um, no one tool is designed to do that, um, and there. Expected outcomes, despite you know the talk of in, within value chains around building relationships and value adding and, and, and engagement among stakeholders, sort of systems level uh, design and, and, and thinking about outcomes. Basically, what what we've what, what you see is um, an intervention package around technical assistance and training. So pretty sort of comfort, uh, pretty traditional. It's definitely the comfort zone of a lot of of, of, of these of NGOs. Um, the international NGOs did work with local NGOs and cooperatives, and these, and these local NGOs and cooperatives often play key roles in implementation, but there was limited sort of oversight and capacity building with them, um, so they were sort of, tend to be given a budget and, and told to get on with it, um, and there's limit, there was limited engagement with other chain actors, whether they were the downstream aggregators or processors um, in those value chains, other service providers outside of the the close group of international NGO and its local NGO partners, and no research, uh, no no engagement with with researchers basically. So um, what does all this mean? There's a need for a broader approach to value chain development, where a combination of tools that are better able to account for context-specific needs of diverse stakeholders, deeper collaboration between actors with inside and outside value chains, and the, the theme sort of that we keep coming back to is the need for more evidence-based reflection and learning and all of this presents huge opportunity for the CGIR as we uh, move ahead in our restructure
0: and organization Okay, thanks Jason. John, uh, before before we pass the yeah. word on to, to John, let, let me say that we've already Spent now 20 minutes on the presentation, which was great. But if we continue at this pace, then there will be no time for Q&A. So I hope, Dietmar and John, that you can speed up just a little bit, so that at least there will be 20, 25 minutes for questions from the audience. Thanks, uh, Jason.
3: Okay, you are. So this part is about a very interesting example from Peru, uh, the Ashaninka Cocoa and Coffee Cooperative where four different actors uh, were really trying out something new, which is um, on development impact bonds. So, the overarching idea of development impact bonds is that risks are shared uh, between an investor, between an outcome funder, between an implementer, which is a social services provider, which you can see on the right-hand side, And there is also an independent party that does verification, which you see on the chart as an evaluator. So in this case, four different actors came together. Um, The outcome funder was the Common Fund for Commodities, CFC. The investor was the Smith Family Foundation. Uh, The intermediary or implementer was Rainforest uh, Foundation, UK. And the independent verifier was um royal tropical institute from the netherlands so they agreed upon a common set of outcome indicators and then the investor the smith family foundation would um advance investments in the implementation done by the service provider whereas the um, outcome funder the cfc would um, provide funding in this case of $110,000 only at the end to the investor when and if um, the outcome indicators were met. So, this kind of structure allowed that the charitable donor, CFC in this case, could transfer a significant part of their risk to the investor and or in other cases to financial markets. Next slide, please. So there's a couple of important lessons learned here and those implications as we're going forward. Um, on the right hand side you do you see by the way how over the last 10 years or so these kind of impact bonds, development impact bonds have been mushrooming. So it's almost an exponential increase and this is really done already in, in several countries. Um, On the downside, it really does require quite a lot of time to prepare it that the different actors would agree on a common set of impact indicators and linked to that are very high transaction costs. Um, At the uh, same time, um, there was also a need to train staff to do additional uh, monitoring beyond the typical project monitoring systems that were in place. But finally, it allowed, and this is the upside, a dramatic change in the donor-implemented type of relationship. Um, the interest of the investor, of course, was to safeguard uh, a rate of return on the investment. But this, in a way, was also backed by this um, new institutional setup. Um, a key role, of course, accrues to the role, a key role accrues to the community here, which you could call uh, the beneficiaries that are those who are supposed to finally reap the benefits and it would be the task of the independent verifier to ensure that that level um, the indicators would be met. Um, the final conclusion of the uh, chapter authors was that there are clear advantages of this model over conventional development project and grants but a lot of experimentation and fine-tuning is still to be done. Next slide please. That gets us to yet another chapter on what used to be now, over the last five years or so, a pretty prominent um, topic um, across different initiatives of value chain development, which is ensuring that value chain development is gender equitable. And for that, uh, three years ago, um, we um, reviewed seven prominent guides for gender equitable value chain development. By a different multi and um, bilateral organizations, just to name a few USAID included, FAO, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, ILO, SNV from the Netherlands. Uh, we did find that um, all the different guides did a great job actually in advocating uh, very persuasively the integration of gender into value chain development programming. They were also raising a couple of important issues to improve the design, um, particularly of those kind of interventions that are supposed to be more inclusive. At the same time, we found that there were significant gaps across the set of um, methodological guides. On the one hand, we didn't really find a lot of um, insight on how women and men in collective enterprises And that would be cooperatives, farmers' association, and also collective enterprises run as limited liability companies, Um, the kind of opportunities that both uh, sexes have there. We also found, and that was quite surprising, relatively little on the influence of norms on gender relations. And then particularly from the implementer's perspective, we did find very limited guidance, how to effectively transform what in many cases will be found as inequitable relations through different design options in value chain development and last but not least we also found limited guidance how to link these kind of tools with other tools that already exist for value chain development next slide please so a couple of implications and particularly we do think there is an opportunity but also a need for both conceptual and methodological innovation that it would address the varying roles of women, men, if you want, also the younger generation, their different needs, the different aspirations um, as regards value chain development. Um, despite the fact that there are already quite a couple of tools out there, we do think there is still a certain need for new tools that would be more integrative. Um, that would explore to a fuller extent the capacity of households and of different households' members, women and men therein, to deepen their engagement in value chains. Particularly, we do think there is a need for more detailed guidance for planning gender equitable value chain development. So, if you think of your field staff, say, in an NGO or in for-profit kind of service provider, what kind of skill set does your staff need? How much time is actually required To get prepared and also what are the additional costs incurred that definitely are an issue finally it would need a structured process of monitoring evaluation learning and you heard it already from jason this is something that really resonates throughout the book that um, beyond the typical m and e that is done in projects which very often is the form of um, implementing value chain development that there is more emphasis put on on joint learning for improved design and implementation. And finally, we do think, and that links back to the issue attention cycles that Jason presented earlier on, um, there is really a need also for deeper collaboration among practitioners and researchers in order to learn together actually how to better address the how and the what now questions. Next slide, please. This gets us to the final wrap up that we still have hopefully sufficient time for the Q&A. Um, we hope that with this very selective, actually, um, presentation of different facets of the book, um, we, we were able to show that there is really quite a broad array of um, manifestations over the last 20 years. We definitely have seen that there were numerous issue tension cycles, and there's an upside to that. Um, we have seen modifications, adjustments over time, Where, in a way, value chain development is currently being used in a broader way to address not only poverty, but also additional issues like food and nutrition security, equity from a gender, but also from an ethnic um, and other social differentiation perspective, and last but not least, but somewhat actually less so, environmental issues. The downside is and I think we heard that um, throughout also the presentation that the interactions between practitioners and researchers have really been limited and sometimes surprisingly so. And you may also add that even among practitioners interactions have been fairly limited because there has been apparently a felt need for branding certain kind of approaches. And that means that given implementing organization might simply apply their tool or their approach. And not really look to the left or to the right what else is around there and all that together has really led to restrained innovation Um, we also still think that despite numerous maybe project level type of monitoring evaluation work there's fairly limited evidence on value chain development impact we definitely do not have that at a broader scale at the country level or even across different countries So there's still a huge knowledge gap, surprisingly so, after 20 years. And as Jason said before, there's a multitude of options of getting value chain development right, but also wrong. Because it is a very complex um, initiative that you would need and a highly dynamic one as well. Next slide, please. So we do think that the 16 book chapters um, that are compiling the book um, do address to a certain extent the knowledge gap, Um, of course not completely. We think there's still a lot of additional work needed. Um, The interesting part of it is that it really provides different perspectives, both from the researchers and the practitioners. And we would think that um, this combined perspective is really uh, one of the insightful features of the book. Um, and it would allow insight into how value chain development is implemented in the field, also various options how to innovate value chain development design, and more than anything, also some kind of clues how to achieve broad based and more lasting impact. At the same time, and you probably hear that um, throughout our presentation, it is also a timely critique of current approaches and it points at a variety of options. Um, that are there for innovating value chain development, both conceptually and methodologically. Reflexive learning, just to mention it one more time, is really important and that would mean that both researchers and practitioners work together to address a a number of those um, still open questions. We definitely do need new collaborative frameworks. And the example of the development impact bonds was just one of them. So we need to think beyond project cycles and and other types of investment. Um, We also need to see how we uh, ensure genuine innovation in value chain design and practice because quite a couple of the issue attention cycles presented earlier Sometimes present old wine in new bottles, um, and very often actually new cycles haven't really addressed the issues that were still pending from the former cycles. So last but not least, we do think there is quite a couple of opportunities to look more deeply into how um, value chain development can effectively be delivered to achieve impact at scale. And with that, I would like to hand it back to Irvine for the Q and A session.
0: Thank you Dietmar, thank you uh, Jason and I'm sorry John that the connection was so bad but indeed following Dietmar's suggestion I propose that we move to the um, Q&A session now that the panelists turn on their camera and that uh, I would like to invite all the uh, other participants to type their questions in the text box that you can find to the right side of the uh, of your screen. Um, I will try to sort these uh, and while you're typing let me just say that I thought it was a very interesting uh session i much liked the uh the historical overview and the context that was provided here um i was i was pleasantly surprised to see that uh those issue attention cycles they've been uh, they've been flagged a few times throughout this presentation interesting to observe as we move from left to right while you guys are typing your questions here as we move from left to right we move from issues and questions that we think we understand and that we're able to capture in in, in theoretical models, but also in empirical work towards more nebulous, complex concepts. It's all systems oriented. So let's say to start off the discussion and before opening up the the floor to questions from the other panelists, let me ask to uh, maybe Jason, because he, he scheduled or he presented this part of the, Of the book. Do you believe that the CGIR is well placed to do this sort of complex systems related work or do you think you need to reach out to other partners in order to do this in an effective way?
1: Yeah thanks, thanks for that question. Um, So I, I think there are real advantages that the CGIR has um, it's it's we're in the right places. We tend to be more closely connected to NGOs, even large businesses um, in the areas where we work. But I don't think I, I I do think we need also engagement. We we also need to be challenged. I think so. I, I think new. I think innovation could come from these uh, with through also through engagement with. Other partners, um, whether those be universities, think tanks. Um, so there's anyway. So I I, I think yeah. So as a partial guess, I guess um, I don't know, Deepmar. Anything, John? Any, you want to chime in there? Or is-
3: yeah, maybe just a short one. Um, I I would think definitely, as you said, CJR is in a very good position. At the same time, I would think CJR is probably also suffering in a way from the same kind of phenomenon that a lot of implementers like NGOs are suffering because a lot of their activities are project bound. And that means you have a couple of years of funding and, and then you got to move on and, and that doesn't really need, uh, lead you into new um, issue attention site, but it leads you maybe into new area, there are new communities to work with, etc. So I, I, I think one of the challenges, but also opportunities is that I think CGIR together with other researchers, but more than anything, together with private sector, governments, and and NGOs, focuses more strongly on given areas, territories, that could be at the subnational level, it could be sometimes at the cross-border level, that they really ensure a long-term presence on the ground, that social capital is built, and then the kind of insight that you build up over time, I think will help to address more of those issues. I think this project curse, as I sometimes call it, is really a downside for reflective learning and continuous improvement over time.
0: Okay, there's a follow-up question in the chat by uh, Graham Thiele who says, how does this issue cycle contrast with Kuhn's paradigm or scientific revolutions and how change happens with cumulative weight of evidence leading to certain paradigm shifts? So in other words, do you see, uh, Jason, uh, John or Dietmar, do you see evidence of uh of those uh attention cycles that that is somehow related to Kuhn's perspective on paradigm shifts and the untenability of the previous paradigm, so to say if there's no volunteer i'm gonna i'm gonna say jason
1: <laughs> hey uh thanks Graham, for that one <laughs> so <laughs> whew, um yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll take a quick stab. Um, John Dietmar, you might help me out here. I I think there's a lot of overlap in the ideas. I mean, that basically, we, we sort of held out the idea that attention issue that issue attention cycles could sort of be have a positive connotation for what we're doing. Um, that that the, that the issue cycles could be based on sort of genuine learning from the field, and that that translates into just better ways of Doing what is an altogether complicated operation. Um, what we found, though, is sort of this idea that we're, we're shifting, right? So there's a lot of are mentioned this idea of a lot of rebranding. So, um, and you see that especially in the the practitioner field and the overall sort of number of the relatively large number of issue retention cycles. Um, the, the simple fact that we don't have sort of the good. Image the learning, the reflective learning that we're looking for that we want um, means that these attention cycles. I mean, they're the new ones are emerging before we ever get close to solving the previous one. So, I i think there's a lot of overlapping ideas. I don't know, John or mark any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I,
3: I, yeah, that's a great question, Graham. Thanks a lot. And, like always, for great questions, the answer is it depends, and it's a yes and a no. So, maybe just two examples that come to my mind. The first one, I mean, we, we all probably know the, the literature by Jerry Fiedel um, on, on value chain governance and the whole notion of a lead firm, multinational companies, if you will, that control the terms of trade and given global value chain. So that has been all very, very insightful. Now, I'm wondering, has there been a good translation of that um, into practice on the ground? And this is where I start with the first yes and no, um, because value chain governance in detail on the ground, I think, looks much more complex. And from a smallholder perspective, and I think this is important as we're talking about value chain development and the poor, um, you, you can think of so many other manifestations of governance, starting like, how are smallholders organized? Um, in the literature, there's quite a bit on contract farming, but that's but one form of becoming organized and, and, and linking through someone um, to, to the remainder of the value chain. We know surprisingly little about the huge diversity of different business and management models of smallholder cooperatives, association, and even some of those collective enterprises are limited liability companies. And we haven't really looked very much into detail which of those um, kind of legal entities is, is a better way. Are there different stages in enterprise development where in the beginning maybe a not-for-profit Collective enterprise is a better forum, and over time you develop into a for profit and um, so that is a lot of questions still on the ground, so that is the first yes and no and and the second one oh uh, gosh i I, I fear I've got that um, one right now, and we we should probably move on to the next question because there are other ones as well okay
0: yeah i ha- I have another question related to this, but maybe before going there a question for John. Uh, and here you have to improvise I'm afraid so uh, I'd like to uh, ask to what are to your opinion the, the major takeaways from the book uh, uh, regarding um, value chain development and and smallholder production so how is value chain development affecting the poor as producers and do you think there is room for? for uh, small-scale smallholder production in the future due to recent developments in value chains, or do you think to the contrary? I think you need to unmute yourself first John.
4: I hope you can hear me now after the difficulties earlier on. Um, There is definitely a future for smallholder farmers and engagement With value chain development. I think one of the uh, key take home messages from the book is the recognition, as Jason was talking about right at the beginning, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And like any approach or issue that we've dealt with in agricultural research for development over the last, at least in my professional time, 30, 30 plus years. Um, we shouldn't treat anything that comes along as a panacea. And in the case of value chain de- development, the examples that I was going to present on, in terms of Guatemala and digital agriculture, was a recognition that farmers are not homogenous. Some Some are able to benefit from market development opportunities. Others are not. In some cases, it might actually contribute to greater gender and social inequality and therefore we should focus on what are the objectives what are those sdgs or if we're in the cgir what are the five impacts that we're aiming for and be more rigorous in determining what sort of farmers are able to develop able to benefit from value chain development and for many that will not necessarily be the way forward and if it's not what are the other development initiatives which are required and to be even more provocative just face it for some farmers agricultural agriculture per se is not a pathway out of poverty so we need to look at quite major livelihood diversification and i think if we're honest about who we're whose needs we're addressing and where others have to step in to look at other development pathways then we're going to be able to work better in partnership and meet in a more comprehensive comprehensive ways the sustainable development goals. Thank you.
0: Now you're muted, Owen. Sorry for that. I said we are respectful of everyone's time, so this is going to be the the last question and then I'm going to hand uh, the floor over to, uh, to Frank. So the last question, uh, Jason is for you, it's from uh, Thiago Schneider from the World Food Programme. Why haven't you decided to include sub-sector development in your timeline of attention cycle issues? Sub-sector research and development was very much in vogue in the development field during the light, late 1980s and 1990s. There's quite a bit of overlapping between sub-sector and value chain frameworks. So maybe a short reflection on that.
1: I Fully agree. <laughs> Um I they just sort of came from different directions, I think, different points of origin, um, but they were getting to the same issues. Um, you know, the value chain development took sort of fairly very conceptual, sort of lofty, was drawn from a lofty sort of discussion among sociologists and development economists. But when, it, when you boil that down to you know the design of work on the field, I think you're right, it was very similar to subsector analysis. So I I think we could, Actually, it's been a couple of years since we wrote that paper. I, I, we'll have to double check, but if we haven't covered that, we certainly will. Thanks for that. Uh, Dietmar, any, any,
3: anything to add there? No, I think that was a good response.
0: Maybe something to consider for the second edition of the book. On that uh, on that note, I would like to thank uh, uh, Jason, Dietmar and, and John for the presentation. I'd like to thank the audience for their uh, For the questions, and I would now like to give the floor to uh, Frank Place, the director of the CJR Research Program on Policies, Institutions and Markets, who will provide some closing remarks. Over to you, Frank.
2: All right. Well, thanks very much, Erwin, and uh, yeah, thanks again to the presenters and all, all of uh, you listening and contributing to our discussion. Um, yeah, I found this a very interesting uh, study, and you know, I'm not a I'm not a value chain uh, specialist in my career. I focus mostly on production, natural resource management. So, but you know, I I look at this topic of value chain development, and I just see a lot uh, that it's it's very very um, Uh, complex. We've got, you know, studying, it. if you're studying of uh, value chains, you've got a current state of affairs, how do value chains work now? There's some kinds of expected trajectory by all the different actors. There's visions that uh, of a better trajectory in the minds of the different stakeholders. There's identification of actions that we can alter the trajectory, the implementation, and then a resulting state. And we're trying to kind of come to grips with all of that, um, and uh, on top of that, you know, we've heard also, also I think, through the, the the case studies that there's a lot of political economy dimensions. You know, not all value chain actors are pulling in the same direction at times, right? They're hoping to get a larger slice of the pie. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, the expected effects of actions are always somewhat uncertain because of competing value chains. You know, whether they're the, the, the same uh, commodity in different countries or or, or comp kind of a substitute goods and things like that. Everything is kind of in flux and to try to grapple with that is very challenging. And so the notion that was put up on one of the slides as value chains as com- complex systems sure resonates with me. Um, you know, so the case studies in the book, uh, some of which were presented today, um, all provide insights into that complexity. And two lessons for me, the two, two of the take-homes for me are, you know, the need to deploy many types of tools, diagnostic or otherwise, and to cast them wide enough to capture this complexity. Um, and I think that the chapters uh, go into that quite, quite a, you know, detail of how they were used, those were used successfully or not. You know, there's some blind spots. And also. So then the second take home is to prioritize the continued monitoring and learning of the effectiveness of of value chain uh, development and and associated interventions, because those are very very difficult to uh, to understand, I think, uh, across the different stakeholders. So I would like to congratulate the presenters, the co-authors of the book, for pulling together these interesting and diverse cases, and to, knit, to enable many different voices and perspectives to emerge through these studies, you know, they noted the the, the, the different kinds of uh, drawing upon the co-authors are drawn from different uh, parts of uh, you know uh, different kinds of groups of practitioners and, and researchers, and that helps us to draw some lessons for the future. Um, and then supposed to. So Speaking of the future, what does this mean for 1CGIR? And I was uh, glad that this question did pop up because I was going to talk to it ab- about it a bit. So I think all, although research will need to continue to look at specific cases, we've got commodities by locations, and there's quite a few of these loca- uh, examples in the book. You know, The 1CGIR ought to, be, ought to enable us to increase the number of collaborative and coordinated studies undertaken to include different value chains and context uh, jointly in order to more quickly understand patterns within this vast complexity and offer some generalizable lessons. So, uh, you know, we have a few of these examples in the CG, not enough, I think. Um, I am looking, uh, you know, uh, uh, virtually at the the presenters who themselves can help make that happen, I think in the future. Um, And I did appreciate the the question that came in to involve others from outside the CGIR. Um, you know, a review of the studies that uh, I actually, Deepmar and Jason are involved in, uh, looking at uh, food supply chains in COVID, during COVID-19 pandemic, found that there was lots of work uh, done at the producer level and the consumer level, but the midstream, uh, midstream analyses were missing, you know, the wholesalers, the processors, the transporters, etc. So I think given that, you know, and these are studies from within or outside the CGE, they threw the, the net wide open, so and we're still missing them. So I think you know, this is a generally neglected part of the value chains and value chain development that we may need to call all hands on deck to. So, so looking in the future, I very much appreciate that we need to, I think the CG is gonna be an important player in that, but we do need to call upon others as well to help us. So I think with those rem- remarks, I'll say once again, thanks to everyone who joined the webinar today live and who will listen to it in the future and stay tuned for further webinars on value chain topics uh, from PIM and I would expect probably from other CRPs as well. So thank you very much.